Well, it's no secret. We all, as humans, age. In fact, you, friend, are a year older today than you were a year ago. Growing old has some perks, though, doesn't it? It, uh, If you're young, there's milestones. When you turn 16, you can start driving. When you're 18, you can... There's a lot of things you can do. You're technically an adult. There's definitely milestones. There's, There's something wonderful about growing old, at least for a season of life, because you become, well more responsible. And, and actually, as you, as you grow older, you become more capable of doing things. You, you have more physical strength, more intellectual capabilities of, of taking in information and making sense of it. And then there comes a point, I don't know when that point is, where physically, intellectually, we begin to go down the other side. And our abilities, instead of increasing, well, they begin to decrease a bit. We don't have as much strength. We don't have as much energy. uh, And our memory just doesn't seem to be as sharp as it used to be. But there is one aspect one aspect of our humanity that ought never decrease, that ought never go downward, because it's meant to continue to grow. And that, dear friend, is our relationship with God. Our godliness has a trajectory. It doesn't ever take the summit and then begin going down the other side. It's meant to grow. It's meant to go upward. You know, the Bible addresses this very thing. In fact, today, as Ralph just read for us, we get to see a passage where Paul, the apostle, tells Titus to instruct older people, older women, older men in this church, and the churches that are on Crete, so that they can train the younger generation. He gives a word to the oldies. You know, our secular culture tends to idolize youth while disregarding or putting down old age. Yet, have you noticed the Bible seems to say the exact opposite? The scriptures tend to associate youth with folly. It tends to associate age with wisdom. You know, the countries that are more traditional, which I think I can count on my hand, well, they they still know this, that age is a good thing. And churches should look on their seniors, this church... Wyoming Church of Christ should look on its seniors not as spiritual has-beens who are not, you know, really good for much, not really sort of past their prime, they're, they're sort of, they're washed up now. Rather, the younger folks, and I say this to all of us, 
who are believers in Christ should see godly older men and women as a vital resource to be sought after, to be respected, and to be adored. So all of us as we age, and here's, here's, here's the point I want to drive home. As we age, because it's inevitable, we must rely on the gospel all the more so that we may be godly examples and teachers to the rising generation. If you want to sort of boil it down, because there's a lot of stuff going on in today's text, that sums up today's passage. That as we age, we must rely on the gospel all the more so that we might be godly examples and teachers to the rising and to the next generation. Let's pray. Lord, you know the thoughts, the attitudes of our hearts this morning better than we even know them. Lord, you have given this opportunity to all of us to sit under the teaching of your word, and we pray. Lord, we pray that you would wake up, maybe physically wake up some people in this church. Lord, that you would encourage, strengthen Lord, there, there's, I could go on and on. You know what's best for us. And so we pray that as your word is preached, it would cut like a knife. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So the second chapter of Titus is one of those where you can get lost examining the trees, but miss the forest. Do you know what I mean by that? Um, for instance, there's heaps of, of different people he's talking to. Did you see that? You know, old blokes, uh, younger guys, uh, younger women, and, and so on, and slaves, and, and all these different people. So in light of that, it's fairly easy to get lost in it all. Like, wait, wait, ho hold on, hold on. Who, who's he talking to now, and, 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 and what are they supposed to do again, and, and why, and what, what's going on here? Or, or you can get snagged on one little word, or a phrase, and end up missing the overarching point. So before we walk through the forest of chapter 2 of Titus, allow me to give you a, a little map or a compass to help you. You up for that? Okay. So you're, you're going to need your Bibles for this. I hope you have them, um, or your electronic devices. So there, there's a lot of instruction um, that's given to different people within age groups and genders. But one way to organize it all is to note the statements that show up at the end of each section. Let me show you what I mean. Look at the end of verse 5. Notice what the result will be if these young ladies, if these young ladies heed what Paul is saying. What will the result be? That, so that, the word of God may not be, what? Reviled. Now drop down to verse 8. Verse 8. If Titus were, is to practice what Paul tells him to do, notice the result. So that, you seeing a theme already? So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And then finally, check out the last bit of verse 10. This is instructions to slaves. If they're to take on board what Paul's saying, notice, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Can you see it? Three times, 
Three times, Paul repeats what will happen if this church takes on board what he is saying. So that the word won't be blasphemed, so that people might or not accuse them of anything, and so that the teaching of God will be attractive. Can you see it there? So as we study chapter 2, you can allow these so that statements to guide you a bit. And here's one more thing to keep in mind, and this is critically important. These so that statements are best read from the bottom up. What do I mean by that? Well, look what he says in the beginning of verse 11. So we didn't read verse 11 for the Bible reading, but notice what Paul says. He says, for, well, you don't start a sentence that way, do you? You don't start a conversation that way. For, for what? It's, it's coming off of something else. You, you understand? For the grace of God has appeared. You see, this is, this is the gospel basis for everything he just said to slaves, to old people, to young people. You understand? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. God's grace and his soon return should be our incentive. That's our motivation to obey what Paul says this week, next week. Does that make sense? The motivation can't be, oh, otherwise people are going to think this is like, you know, this is not a, uh, all, all the so that statements. Those are the results. Are you still with me? The motivation can't be the result. Oh, I better not do this so that God's word isn't blaspheme. I better not do that so uh, people, God's word is, you know, attractive. No, no, no. If you live that way, that's just simply the result, okay? But the incentive is, it's grounded in verse 11, which is God's grace. That's why I say, read from the bottom up. Make sense? Okay. Dan said that's good. He's paying attention. He's excited. You know, I do, I do feel, I do feel a, t- a tinge sorry for you guys. You know, I, I tend to just rah, 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 and, and it's just not the culture on the Central Coast in general. And, and that's not a fault on you. That's just who I am and where I'm from. And sometimes I just, rah, 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 and, and you guys are like, yeah, right. Yeah, right. So thank you for putting up with me. I love you. And the passion doesn't mean I'm angry, Okay. I'm excited about these things. So, yeah. All right. Some of you still a bit deadpan. That's all right. Um, now, let's jump into chapter 2, verse 1. Because it's, it's an interesting way that he starts. He says, but as for you, can you see that there? But as for you, what's, what? again, a strange, kind of a peculiar way to start a, a conversation. If I were to walk up to Paul and then I said, but as for you, whoa. As for me, what? what? What's Paul doing? Well, well, he's contrasting, isn't he? He's contrasting between the false teachers and who Titus is. Uh, do you remember last week, Dan did an excellent job preaching about the false teachers and they must be silenced? You remember that? And, and, and one of the reasons they need to be silenced is because they're upsetting whole households. Now... What does Paul do? He turns his finger from pointing at them, sticks his finger right in Titus's chest, as it were, and says, you, you, 
you don't stay silent. You speak, and you speak what is fitting so that households are actually built up. See the contrast? It's kind of like, um, you know, if you're in a context and you've got little kids or, or maybe as your kids became older and they said, Mom, Dad, all the kids are running amok and they're not listening to their parents. And, blah, blah, blah. and, and, and the, sort of the, the subtext to that is, can I run amok too, right? You know, and, 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 and your response is, well, hopefully, well, look, I, I understand that the other kids are doing that, but, but as for you, for your part, this is what I expect of you. That, that's what Titus is doing here. That, that, that's, that's his job. That's what he's to, that's what he's to do. Well, what's he to, well, then what? Then what's he to do? What's his part? Well, he's to speak. He's to teach what is fitting with sound teaching. Oh, no surprise there, right? Probably didn't expect anything. But here's maybe what's surprising. Did you notice something a bit odd in verses 1 through 10? There is not one example of sound doctrine. You, you follow me? Did you catch that? In our passage today, Paul doesn't once address the content of sound doctrine. Rather, he addresses the effects that it brings. Hey, he doesn't identify what sound doctrine is, but he identifies what sound doctrine does, what it produces in their homes and marriages and families and in their vocations. And that's why he covers, did you notice he really covers the gamut of people groups and different ages and genders and all of that? I mean, he addresses old blokes, elderly women, young gals, young men. He even has a personal word to Titus. And then finally addresses slaves. Five different groups. Five different groups there. And the first in line, the first in line to receive instruction are the gray beards in the flock. The old blokes. Notice how he dresses them personally. You see that in verse 2? Um, older men. <gasps> Who are you calling old? Come on. It's too bad we're not given a specific age. It'd be a bit helpful. Um, you know, is, is, does he have in mind there are blokes in their 50s, 60s? We're not told. And in a sense, it doesn't actually matter because it's not really the point. What does stand out, what does stand out in this is, is these guys, how they're called to live, right? Have a look at verse 2. Notice there's four qualities that should characterize these older men. And fellas, my grandpas in Christ here, as I, or uncles, as I read this, I want you to rather, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, if you call yourself a Christian, these things should characterize you. And, and these little things here, they're not heaps different than some of the older qualifications. So if you start to think, well, nice for you to say, just go back up to chapter one and see all the things that I have to cop it on, okay? So notice here what he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then here we go. Here's the ethics of sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, and then this fourth one is a bit loaded. Sound, that's where we get the word hygiene from, healthy. Sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, let's look at this first word because it's, it's very interesting. It, it can communicate the idea of being temperate in their use of alcohol. 
or paint a picture of a level-headed guy who's sober in judgment. You get that? It sort of ranges in meaning. It could refer to being temperate in the use of alcohol. Also give a picture, paint this idea of a level-headed, clear-headed man who's sober in his judgment. In other words, he's able to show restraint not only in what he drinks, but in what he thinks. He's able to reel in his thoughts. I like how the ESV translate this, sober-minded. I think that's a helpful image. Older men must restrain their tongues from complaining and criticizing their thoughts from wandering and lusting. They must restrain their actions from anger and laziness. They are to be temperate in these things. And because their commitment to the Lord is so evident, because it is so obvious for everyone to see, they are worthy of respect. That's the second quality. Men are to be dignified. Dignified. Now, depending on your... And, and kids, I don't know if you're following along with this, but some people might have a Bible translation that says they're to be temperate and they're to be grave. Now, grave in English sort of, well... That gives you the impression of someone who's a bit too serious or too gloomy. They don't know how to laugh at a joke. They don't even have a sense of humor. Kids, are you, um, are you familiar with the character Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? He's pretty grave, right? You know, that little donkey. Thanks for noticing me. After all, what are birthdays? Here today, gone tomorrow. The sky has fallen. Always knew it would. I don't think that's what we're meant to envision in our minds by this word dignified or grave. However, when you observe older men in this church, there should be a gravity, a sense of weightiness to their lives that comes from walking with the Lord over time. Basically, the way they act, the way they treat others their overall demeanor is dignified. It's worthy of respect. You can tell that this is a top-shelf bloke because he has walked with the Lord for decades, and we're drawn to people like that. We want to learn from old blokes like that. We need old blokes like that. I want to put it on the sign out in front. Old blokes wanted. You know, who knows what kind of people we'd get in here, right? <laughs> But not just, oh, do you understand? Look at the call on your life, older brother. Hey, there's a, you know, it's a, older too could be a relative term. Like, like, I'm older than other people in this church. Certainly not the youngest guy. So, so the, it, you see, I mean, there, there can be steps of this. And, and so when, when I say old blokes wanted, it's not just, oh, look, oh, we, we just welcome old people here and that's what we're on about. No, 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 no. I'm telling you, this is the word of God says for you to do. You're to be temperate and dignified in your walk with Christ. This, yeah. The third quality, the third quality, it's kind of like a rubber band that stretches across all groups. It's the only attribute used of every age and gender in the church. Did you notice that? You see it in verse, it's self-control, right? You see it in verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 6. Now listen, 
it's actually the only quality, the only one that a younger man must have. Did you see that in verse 6? Uh, likewise, verse 6, urge the younger men to be what? Self-control. That's it. That's all, boys. That's the one thing you're to do <laughs> is to be self-controlled. Because, listen, if you are a younger man in here today, this is your biggest problem. Because a young man without self-control is dangerous. A young man who is not able to control his passions, his heart, his physical life, his tongue, what, all of that is like a, the hopeless man of Proverbs 25, 28, which says a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Like, like a city broken into, left without walls. He's dangerous. I mean, in the ancient times, think about it. A city without walls was a city open and vulnerable to all kinds of attack, right? There's nothing that can't get in. There's nothing that can't mess that whole thing up. And so Paul focuses attention on both older and younger guys. And he says, brothers, brothers, be self-controlled. Focus your attention on Jesus so that you do not focus your attention on your own self and on your own desires, and on your own heart. The idea of self-controlled here is someone who's able to curb sinful desires and impulses. The desires of his heart do not rule or control his life and his actions. Oh, sure, he may stumble and fall into sin at times, but they do not ultimately win over his soul because he knows Jesus is better than sin. Jesus is greater than sin. The gospel is sweeter than any vice. Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. And this last one is three-pronged. Uh, it's like cooking meat on the barbie. Paul holds up three beautiful snags right? They just look gorgeous. But they're all being supported by this sound and reliable meat prong that he's holding. Read the last part of verse 2, where he uses this word, you see it? Sound. As I said, it means to be in good physical health. It's actually where we get our word hygiene. Older men are to be healthy, and then here comes the three prongs. In faith, what are they be, what are they be sound? What are they be healthy in? In faith, in love, in steadfastness. Have you ever noticed Paul seems to like using these threefold expressions? Remember back to chapter one? Faith, knowledge, godliness. Remember? That, that, that's, he lo loves those little threefold expressions. That, he's, a, he's an apostle for the faith, knowledge, and godliness of God's chosen people. Oh, and if that doesn't ring a bell, if you're like, I, 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 it's been too long since then, Okay, okay, you've probably heard one of his famous little triads at, say, a wedding. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, right? Evidently, he liked using these little expressions, these three-pronged expressions. Faith, love. Here, notice the last one, perseverance, steadfastness. I like how he included that. 
I mean, this is not, dear friend, my older brother, this is not a time for you to retire in your spirituality and coast. On the contrary, this is a time for you to run the hardest. One commentator put it this way, he said, how different is the Bible's view of old age compared to that of Western society? Many people look forward to their senior years as a time of frivolous self-absorption. But the Christian does not see his senior years as one last chance for fun before dying. Rather, he knows that eternity draws near in the joyful rest of heaven with Jesus Christ. While he lives, the godly man wants to leverage his experiences and relationships to make as big an impact to the kingdom as possible, especially longing to lead young people to faith in Jesus. That is a beautiful picture. Not a, not a bloke who's putting his feet up, but one that's pushing, even as his body deteriorates, even as things, capacities slow down, his heart for Christ beats all the faster. That's a beautiful picture. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So from these initial instructions for older men, Paul has a Titus 2 plan. Can you see it already? It, it, it's a Titus 2 plan for making grace ripple through the church community. And now, now that grace, now that little ripple effect, it keeps flowing and it goes to, goes to the ladies. See, next, Paul focuses attention on the older women, on the godly grannies, if I dare say it. And just like the blokes, he commands really, comments on their character, then speaks about their example. Speaks about their example. Think about this, dear sister. Your, your walk with Christ is hopefully rich and flourishing and growing, etc., etc. but it's not just for you. It's actually, yes, it's vertical, but it's also, as it should be lived, within a local church, it's horizontal. Your example. And again, the same goes for the blogs, this relative term. It's not, yes, again, when I say older women, I'll keep my head down because I don't have anyone in mind here. <laughs> Philo said it, Philo, Philo, you know that name? He said it starts at 60. That's not Philo's words, not mine. But it's, I, I, I say that all in tongue-in-cheek because uh, the same, it doesn't have to be just godly grannies, though I think that's a, I like that little phrase, but it's actually the same thing. It's, you know, I'm 42 and I can influence guys that are younger than me. Uh, Caleb and I, sort of embarrass you, Caleb, you're never going to have coffee with me again, but Caleb and I had coffee this week and, and we were able to talk about life, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm not much older than this guy, but, you know, somewhat older than him. You get the point, though? It's the same thing, and, and, and that happens, I think, that can happen on a Friday night at the Kinney's house with Skye and some of the other younger gals. It, it's, it's broad enough. But, but let me say this, because, because I think there's this, um, I really hope to encourage, I wanted to challenge the old blokes, and I really wanted to challenge the godly grannies here, um, because I, I would hate for you to take your spirituality and just sort of put it in autopilot, Right? Just kind of coast into heaven. 
Like, I, I really want to, like, hear, hear me as, as, a, as a son in the faith, grandson maybe. I, I love you, and I want, I want you to feel riveted on by these words of Scripture, okay? So look at, so notice there's, there's four, just like the blokes, there's four qualities. Something a little bit different, though. Two are to be emulated. Two are to be avoided. And, and the way he frames them is interesting. One is to be sought after. The fourth is to be sought after, but in the middle, there are two bad ones. It's kind of like a, a sandwich, two organic pieces of bread on the outside, but with rotten meat in the middle, okay? I don't know if that helps you, but let's, let's have a look at it. Notice the qualities here. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound of faith and love and steadfastness. Now, he turns to older women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Really interesting. A lot of qualities there. The first one, I want to, I guess, give you a, a vision in your mind. I want you to think for a second. Think back to the Old Testament and consider a priest. What images come to mind when you think of an Old Testament priest? Picture for a moment a priest working in the tabernacle or temple. What was his life supposed to look like? Someone who was committed to the Lord, right? Whose overall conduct was holy. That's the kind of posture older women are to display in the church, to be reverent in their behavior. Like a priest, these ladies know they belong to the Lord. You can see it in their demeanor. You can hear it in the way that they talk. They don't go about gossiping and slandering others. They don't use prayer requests as a time to share someone else's sin. Oh, we should probably be praying for so-and-so. Why? Oh, you didn't hear what they're into now? Oh, well, yeah, we should probably be praying for them. Okay, let's, yeah, let's pray for them. Oh did, oh, did you hear about their marriage? Oh, look, it's, yeah, it's really struggling. Oh, I reckon it's, it's his fault. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, we should pray. Look, let's just pray. Careful, sisters, careful. If you're not part of the problem or solution and decide to share it anyway, there's a good chance you're slandering. If you're not part of the problem or the solution and you decide to divulge it, to share it anyway, there's a good chance you're slandering and that that, dear sister, should sin, shivers up your spine. Do you know why? The word slander is used 38 times in the New Testament, and 34 of those times it refers to the devil, the chief slanderer, the chief accuser of the brethren. So listen, if you gossip 
and accuse another sister in Christ, Paul says, Paul says, you're not acting like Jesus, you're acting like the devil. It's demonic, it's evil, it's wicked. It might be what the Cretans did in their day, but it's certainly not what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ does in its day. And then he brings up excessive drinking again. Notice, come again to verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not satanic. I mean, really, like not slanderous. So can I just say, the next time you think that that's just a, um, a, a small little thing, know that, again, can I just, I think I've probably already driven that point home pretty gnarly enough, but, but just know that, like, it's not, this, this is straight from the pit of hell when you slander other people in this church. And, and I know it's, I, it, forget the Harry Potter books, okay? For, uh, forget the Ouija boards and all that stuff. It's easy, those are, oh, you can shoot your machine gun at that and then run your mouth. You're being just as satanic, according to the scriptures. So, I love you. Let's continue to read. I'm ready for your emails. Um, <laughs> older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. It brings it up again. It must have been a problem in Crete. Uh, I guess there was, uh, I read this week, uh, it was a virtue for women to be drunk um, in, in Crete. Uh, you know, you could picture it. Remember, he's talking to older ladies. Some of them probably were empty nesters, right? And so, you know, they got extra free time on their hands. Uh, maybe they go meet up with some of their girlfriends, bring a little cheese board, a couple pieces of cheese, you know, crack, crack open a couple, you know, whatever it might be. And, and then as they start drinking, well, they start chatting. Same thing happens today. Same thing happens, you know, a little bit more wine, start to, you know, become a little uh, not controlled. You're, un, you're, you're unbridled in your behavior. And Paul says, that's, that's not, that's, that doesn't characterize a Christian woman. It's not becoming of a Christian woman. And so, what is? What is then? Right? Well, after identifying these negative behaviors, Paul identifies their positive pursuits. Well, they're, notice, to be, what does it say? Reverend behavior, not slander. They are to teach what is good. Now, that's an interesting little phrase there. Teach what is good. It's actually not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Nor can you go outside of the New Testament to find it in ancient Greek literature. So Paul, Paul might have coined this phrase himself. We don't know. I don't think this refers to women doing public teaching on a Sunday in church. Otherwise, that'd contradict what he said in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. I'm not convinced Paul has in mind an official teaching position in the church. More likely, the teaching here is informal, as in one-to-one -one mentorship in the home. Now, the reason being I say that, look at the context. The type of teaching is presented in the following verses. Teaching what is good. I know we have a verse there, but these verses were, you know, these verses were added later, right? Paul didn't say verse four. 
These are added way later down the track. Teaching what is good in this way, in other words, right? Training younger women to love their husbands and kids and so on. It's not public teaching. It's more private and personal instruction. Essentially, the good things that the older women are to teach the younger seem to relate primarily to marriage and family life. I guess, have you heard the phrase, more is caught than taught? It's this sort of life-on-life kind of teaching I think Paul's referring to. It's, it's within that sphere that they're called to be good teachers. Bill Mounts has a lovely picture of it. He says, it pictures the older women, those who are experienced in life, marriage and child rearing, taking the younger women in the congregation under their care and helping them to adjust to their responsibilities. It is a blessed and needed ministry that cannot be accomplished by men. This quality leads into this next section on young women as verses four through five spell out what the older women are to teach the younger ones. So I think we can get it. Older ladies are to school the newbies, right? But here's the deal. As I was just saying earlier, we can't just hang older ladies as, you know, we don't have a, 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 a number for that. But I think there's a danger for us as a church if we isolate ourselves into groups of the same age or the same stage of life, which is why we want to resist the pragmatism of collecting around, oh, this is the 20-something church that meets on Saturday nights. Or this is the 60 to 70, this is the 60 to 70 church. This is uh, the young families church. There's a church for the oldies that meets at 8 o'clock and a church for uh, the young people. Uh, that's where you ditch the tie and you bust out the guitars at 10 o'clock. Oh, and if you don't like that, you can come to night church. We all need opportunities where we can get, where we can have over, be overlapping with people from different generations, different ages, different places in life so that this can be lived out. So that we can look to those who have gone before us or be an example to those who are coming after us. This is a priceless ministry within the church. Do you understand? I, I want to spend the remainder of our time now observing the principles the older women are to pass on to the younger. It's interesting, the first two focus on her attitude towards her husband and kids. It's interesting, right? Notice... It's a bit surprising that the list of characteristics for young women begin with love for husband and children. Isn't that, you know, you, I just find that interesting. And, and the older women are to be called upon to teach younger women to love their husbands and their children. That's, that's what it's saying. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands. So ladies, if you're married, you are to be Husband lovers. Now, when you, I understand, when you got married, that's sort of a no-brainer, right? That's why you married the bloke in the first place. You're a husband lover. And some years later, perhaps some moments later after the honeymoon, you realize that this is going to require a bit more commitment on your part. It may require a frequent reminder that this man is not just a partner to help raise the kids This is not just someone to help with the chores. This is your husband. And young women sometimes need to be reminded that the relationship is not just a side-by-side one, but to cultivate love for their husbands. And here's where older women can help. 
Because sometimes, after the honeymoon phase, the husband doesn't come in with a bouquet of roses riding on a horse, but he's selfish, annoying, he stinks, and so on and so forth. And older ladies who have loved God and remain faithful to their husbands can say, you know, here's something I learned along the way. And they come along patiently and say, the Lord calls you to love your husband. And it is difficult to do. And this is why... Da, 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 da. It's a beautiful picture, actually. But then it's also interesting that it says love their kids. I'm like, come on, don't all mama bears love their kids? It's kind of encouraging that it's there, right? But it's not always automatic. You know? It's, it's unlikely that if you have young kids, they're going to you know, allow you to sleep in and, you know, then right when you start to rise out of bed, they're going to say, no, 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 mom, it's okay, it's okay. For everything you've done, just, just rest today. <laughs> and I just, just, you know, and then when you do finally get up, your favorite drink is sitting on the counter for you and your kids are there singing, a mighty fortress is our God. Mother, we just read in Proverbs 31, today is the day we will call you blessed. No, no. It's usually getting you up at 6 a.m. when you're tired. You don't want to, can't be bothered. We're hungry. Kids aren't, you know. Some kids are ruining their nappies. Other kids doing no, gosh knows what. And, and it's in those moments, Paul says, you need an, an, a good, godly sister to come along and remind you to love your kids. You're human. It's not automatic. And notice the other quality there, to be self-controlled. Can I ask, how, how are you containing your emotions? Do you find yourself a bit moody at times and snappy with your husband? Or your kids? Uh, I mean, is this, is this going to be good wife, bad wife sort of day? You're, you're to be self-controlled. You're to learn these things. By grace. But you're to learn these things. And you're to be pure, meaning physically chaste. Pure not only in your commitment to your husband, but I would argue the romantic novels that you read. Some maybe the rom-coms that you watch and let your mind drift. You're to be pure. You're to be devoted to the man that God has given you. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then this last one, it's not, or second to last, it's not, um, these last two aren't controversial at all, uh, working at home. Now, a lot can be said there, and I'm happy to talk with a lot of you on certain things, but let me just say this. Regardless of your occupation, your priorities, your aim, your general posture is to be for the welfare of, if you're married and if you have kids, of the home. So you might work outside of the home, but your general posture, you're, you're not just coming in, crashing in, throwing in 
sloppy seconds because you're just drained. You're shouldering it saying, this is the greatest ministry that God has given me. My husband, my kids. So let's keep reading. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working in home, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Now this word submit means to arrange under, to voluntarily place oneself under. God has ordained the husband to lead his wife and she is to place herself under his leadership. Ephesians 5, wives, submit, same word, uh, and then you don't know Greek, doesn't matter. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. That doesn't imply that a wife is to suppress her intelligence, talents, and gifts in the home, but she should fully express these gifts in the purpose of supporting her husband in the spiritual leadership of the home. This has been, by the way, some of you don't like what I'm saying, but know this, and I don't say this in a sort of a brash sort of way, this is God's design from the beginning. So ultimately, if, if you're bristling at that, um, it could be that you are reading this book through your own, perhaps, feminist presuppositional lens. Okay? This is, this is the word of God is, is so clear, and this is such a beautiful display of where the, how God has designed manhood and womanhood to operate. Our marriages, dear friends, need to be countercultural. They're to, they're to be a public witness so that, what does it say? The word of God is not reviled. When you see a, a woman who's just throwing her husband under the bus through her words, has no respect for him, she looks just like any other lady out there in the world. She doesn't look any different. Now, if you're feeling condemned or overwhelmed or burdened or upset by God's high calling upon you, by what God expects of you, by the example that you are to set for people in this church, then you need to run to verse 11. Remember I said read from the bottom up? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is our hope when we fail. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. That, notice verse 12, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it doesn't end there, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
if you are, if that is true of you, you should be, remember I was teasing you earlier about being like, yeah, right. Uh, that's okay. That's going to be your culture. But you should be zealous, whatever that looks like in your own context, for good works to do this kind of stuff that Paul just talked about. That's the good. This is our hope. When we fail, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross is who we look to. All of the things that we have not done right, he's taken away. Not just so that we can be saved when we first believed, but that we can continue to grow in grace. So we'd be conformed more and more in his image as we age. Oldies and youngsters, men and women, boys and girls, we need, to, we need the gospel of God's grace as much as today as as ever. Are you discouraged? Are you feeling heavy that your life doesn't look like you want it to? That you're not as holy as you think you should be? Look to Jesus, dear friend. Are you overwhelmed thinking that, what could I possibly teach a younger gal? What could I possibly help a younger bloke with? They seem so much further along than I was at that age. Oh, friend, look to Jesus. We need the gospel all the more as we age, as our bodies begin to grow soft and weak and tired, as our minds aren't as clear and sharp as they once were. We need the gospel so that we might continue to grow in grace, so that our lives would reflect the glory of God to a rising generation. We need the gospel. Oldies, youngsters, and everyone in between. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you again for this opportunity to open your word. Lord, it is, uh, it is all too easy to give mental assent and agreement to these truths and then just park them here at this church and go off and live our own lives. We ask that Lord, as your word was taught, as your voice was heard, so to speak, uh, that that would echo in our minds and in our hearts and nag at us in a loving way that we would look at these truths like a mirror and hold them up to our lives and to our brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that we would be a Titus 2 type of church. Thank you for the good work that's already happening. We just pray, Lord, that this would not, again, just sort of be parked here. But, Lord, we pray even, even now that you'd give boldness to the young gals to approach. Lord, if they, if they see some of these fruits and evidences in some of the old elder ladies here, that they would be able to approach them and ask for this one-to-one teaching, this mentorship. And we pray for teachability, Lord, and confidence for the, for the ladies if they are approached. Lord, we pray the same for the young guys and the old guys. Lord, this, this could be a, a slight messy and a bit uncomfortable, but Lord, if it is banks on your word and your gospel, we know that you will help us along the way. So Lord, give us, give us the strength to do so. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friend, if you're